0: Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This is your host, Brian Anderson. Joining us on today's show is Jim Copeland, my colleague. He's a senior fellow and director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute, and he's a frequent contributor to City Journal. You can follow him on Twitter at James R. Copeland, and there's no E in Copeland. It's C-O-P-L-A-N-D. Jim's written three fascinating pieces for us over the last several weeks, which we'll be talking about here on the podcast. Uh, on the legal and regulatory side, really, of the coronavirus pandemic, his first piece, uh, which went online in late March and is in our spring issue of the magazine, is called "The Real Life Costs of Bad Regulation." You can find this work on the City Journal website, and we'll link to Jim's author page in the description. Jim, thanks very much for for coming on. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, your first piece details some of the early. Uh, administrative failings that took place at the FDA and the CDC in fighting the pandemic. Could you talk a bit about some of the specific regulatory hurdles that may have delayed our response in those early days of the crisis or made it less effective? Absolutely. And I think this is the story. It's it's
1: somewhat told, but but it's the untold story here. Everyone focuses on the political actors and, of course, the president, various governors in New York, Governor Cuomo, you, people are looking at Congress passing more than $2 trillion of, of new allocations. But uh, the real critical failing uh, in the U.S. response came at the administrative agencies and the unelected actors running those agencies. Uh, and, and these aren't political hacks, I want to emphasize. I mean, Stephen Hahn, uh the director of the, the the food and drug administration the administrator is uh an experienced oncologist he ran md anderson in houston very experienced doctor with administrative expertise robert redfield uh who runs the cdc very experienced doctor a virologist who worked on hiv research so these these are experts um but they made critical mistakes here uh and the critical mistakes were Uh, a combination of in-the-moment judgment and sort of bad, obsolete regulatory garbage that got in the way, none of which was really ever authorized by Congress directly, uh, but was delegated to these administrative agencies. And so the critical failure um, was the FDA's decision to have the CDC be the only authorized entity uh, to create a test for the novel coronavirus coming out of, of China. Now, the w, the WHO, working with some folks in Europe, had come up, the World Health Organization, with uh, an alternative test. We went with our own test. Nothing wrong with the CDC developing its own test in principle. Ours actually had some problems. Uh, but the bigger problem was a complete inability to scale the test up and get a lot of tests out early so that any sort of contract tracing, the, what we've seen happening uh, in Korea and some of the East Asian countries, it, basically any of that was impossible in the United States. We were way behind the curve. By the end of February, the CDC had only manufactured four thousand tests. Now, now the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, does have the authority to to grant what's called an emergency use authorization uh, to to other entities, to, to any entity it, it, it approves. Uh, to come out with testing and eventually in March started doing that. And we've seen the private sector companies innovating very aggressively, uh, and, and getting more and more testing out such that the United States is now well ahead of, of many European countries, uh, not just in the aggregate, but on a per capita basis. And, and, uh, you know, really, it's not, it's not the front of the pack, but, but given our population size, our ability to scale up testing has been quite impressive. Uh, since the middle of March, but we lost that critical six weeks six week window from the moment in time when the President uh, de- declared an emergency and and health and human services uh, declared an emergency. The FDA decided well we 're going to do this all in house and what does this tell you? It tells you that as important as experts are, and I, I want to emphasize i 'm not suggesting that our administrative agencies uh, don 't have expert staffing, and that those experts aren't important but they're not as well equipped as say private sector companies to think about where are the critical shortages going to be in the manufacturing and distribution lines you know when we're when we were requiring this nasal swab test you know what are the products that are going to be necessary? How available are there? What alternatives might we have? How are we going to able, be able to distribute these things? These sort of manufacturing production distribution decisions are ones that our private sector companies do all the time, and our Centers for Disease Control simply weren't equipped to do, and, and it really left us behind the eight ball. And that's even beyond you know some of the, the, the deadwood regulations that were getting in the way Uh, So you had companies trying to apply for emergency use authorizations that weren't being granted and being told, well, no, you can't submit this online. You actually have to mail in a CD-ROM because that's what our regulation says. And that sort of tells you as much as The administrative agencies like to say, "Well, we can't have judicial review uh, of of what we do, and we 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 need we can't have we need to have this delegation so we can act quickly." They were actually sitting there and requiring CD-ROMs based on old regulatory rules.
0: Right, that's remarkable, given how few people even know what a CD-ROM probably is these days. Um, A second piece you wrote was kind of a sequel to this uh, initial. Um, exploration of the of the uh, FDA and CDC problems, uh, and this concerned uh, the Apple Watch, and it kind of blew up on Twitter after you published this, and uh, the, the argument or the analysis showed how FDA regulations were preventing users uh, from deploying a function that could literally be life-saving in the outbreak. Do you want to explain uh, that um, narrative a little bit um, our
1: exactly. One of the things that emerged and, and and we had a the New York Times had a big article on this and a, there was an emergency room doctor who said, you know, listen, I mean, a lot of my patients are coming in and showing up at the hospital with COVID-19 infections and their blood oxygen levels are dangerously low and they're dangerously low even if the, the, the onset of disease was relatively recent and he was picking up asymptomatic individuals who were coming in for something else, but ultimately were determined to have COVID-19 and they had dangerously low blood oxygen levels. What does that mean? It, it means that uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell you actually aren't getting as much oxygen into your bloodstream. You can have an ongoing infection. And if you don't pick this up early, like most things in medicine, picking up early is very good. If you don't pick this up early, you could already be so far down the line that your recovery could be very compromised if once you actually get to the hospital. So what he suggested is everyone ought to try to, you know, get a pulse ox what's called a pulse oximeter and, and do your own self-monitoring of your blood oxygen levels. What turns out this is actually a fairly simple technology and and something that's that's pretty easy to do. The The modern pulse oximeters, you know, the, the, the basic technology was developed in the early 1970s in Japan. And you can, in ordinary times at the drugstore or on Amazon, pick up these sort of cheap $30 pulse oximeters uh, that you can put on your finger they're using pre-1976 technology, and we'll explain why, why it's pre-1976 in a minute, but, but they work well. Um, the, the problem is, again, I mean, there's a certain stock of, of pulse oxometers that are made, but it's not a huge oversupply to the ordinary demand situation. So once this article comes out, you know, I go on Amazon to try to get one. Oh, well, you can get one in two weeks, maybe. And the price—the prices are kind of going up, but everyone's afraid of a price gouging claim. So you end up with inevitable shortages. Um, and the same way we had shortages in of, of things like hand sanitizers, toilet paper, all, all sorts of different reasons. Hand sanitizers actually is another FDA question because the FDA actually regulates alcohol-based hand sanitizers and was making it very difficult uh, until they finally waived a bunch of regulations for, uh, say, liquor companies to convert operations to making hand sanitizer. But, but the, what's, what's amazing when we started looking at this pulse oximeter market is that the Apple Watch, now not everyone has an Apple Watch, but it has a 50% market share in the smartwatch uh, market. And when it was first released some five, six years ago, uh, the tech articles writing on it said, well, wait a minute, this is interesting. They actually have technology to read blood alcohol level, uh, to, to, to your, your blood oxygen levels, excuse me, in your, in your blood. But that, that's basically the same technology used in pulse oximeters. You know, that's how you can check your pulse on the Apple Watch. But that is actually a disabled feature. In other words, the, the actual architectures inside the watch but you can't use it. Um, and that's generally been the case across all of these uh, devices with with some exceptions. Samsung's phones actually have a, a reader on the back and I have an old Samsung phone where you can read your blood oxygen level and pulse through this technology in the back. Although they suspended that for their most recent S20 update. And my guess is that's due to legal and regulatory concerns. So what are those concerns? Well. In 1976, Congress passed what's called the Medical Devices Amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. This was after the Dowcon Shield was uh, determined to be dangerous uh, in the mid-70s, and Ted Kennedy led this saying, well, we don't need the FDA only looking at pharmaceuticals. They need to be looking at medical devices. That means that any medical device manufactured using technology post-1976 Um, has to go through various administrative clearances through the FDA to get approved. Um, Well, you can see instantly why a company like Apple, which wants to stay ahead of the curve, get its product out quickly and generates enormous sales, isn't going to hold up the release of an Apple watch to go through an FDA review process. So they've got this technology built into the watch that no one can use. And, and my guess is Samsung may have gotten cold feet too, and it's not an American company. They may have had different legal counsel on it. We are starting to see the Fitbit uh, just got some pr- approval this January for some pulse oximetry. It's more of an overnight reading, not an instant reading, but at least something there on the market. Um, you know, th- the point here isn't that you cannot get a pulse oximeter uh, on the market. It's it's possible to do so. I've subsequently been able to acquire one of the $30 ones. Um, and the readings are essentially the same as the ones I get on when I get on my old Samsung phone. But, but uh, there's lots of people who already had a product with this technology. They can't get it based on the FDA regulation that's baked into there. And so basically, all we can get on the market uh, are these pulse oximeters, that are using pre nineteen seventy six technology. Right. That's why they're able to wave in and wave past the review process that the FDA otherwise insists on.
0: It's it's quite remarkable. Um, slowing down innovation and uh, um, kind of needless regulatory uh, oversight in this case. Um, your your most recent uh, piece in this series covers one of the most important issues that's going to be facing the country as we now try to reopen local economies and move on. From uh, the COVID crisis, uh, and that's lawsuits. Uh, while the economy's, you know, struggling to reopen, lawsuits are already being filed, right, against uh, companies, hospitals. Um, I wonder if you could elaborate on this uh, extremely uh, concerning problem and what might be done about it.
1: This is uh, a huge problem that is idiosyncratic to the United States, and and by that I mean I don't mean that there are no lawsuits over product liability and and worker injury and customer injury in in other developed countries, but they're not nearly as as significant a shadow regulatory force or a regulation through litigation force as we see in the United States. So in in the average European country. Uh, the the total cost of of tort liability or or injury lawsuits is about one third what you have in the United States, um, and that's because we have uh, a lot of features that are unique to our system uh, compared to all the European countries. We're unique in uh, allowing uh, the winner of a lawsuit not allowing the winner of a lawsuit to recoup losses. Uh, from the loser the so-called loser pay system so that in europe if you file a suit and you lose your suit then you have to pay the legal fees of the de- of the defense that's not the case in the u.s which encourages a lot of what we call shakedown lawsuits or what our former colleague maria griffin called nuisance lawsuits where you, you can file a lawsuit and it has an instant settlement value Uh, because if you walk away, if you don't walk away from the lawsuit and you litigate it and win, you still have to pay your lawyers and you don't get that recouped. We also give civil juries and they don't even have these in continental Europe. We give civil juries substantially more power to try to decide complex liability trials. Um, we give sweeping rights to, towards civil discovery, depositions and things like this. So these things all add up and, and make us have a much, much more expensive liability system. And, and it's particularly pernicious for small businesses, the ones that are really getting hammered by this epidemic and some of the government shutdown and regulatory moves that have gone on in this, this epidemic, because Small businesses cannot uh, easily fight back against plaintiffs lawyers due to this lack of a loser pays mechanism. So if they get one of these suits, um, they almost have to settle it or they could be risking their entire company putting it on the line. Um, so this is really a sort of second order layer of go ahead, Brian.
0: Oh, well, I was just saying so we're seeing some of these lawsuits already being being you know directed at companies that are reopening. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of them, um,
1: and they're they're kind of all over the map, which is somewhat the interesting point and why I call it a COVID nineteen recovery tax. I've I've long talked about the tort tax. It wasn't something a phrase I coined. My our, our colleague Peter Huber used it in his book in the nineteen eighties liability, but but uh, the point here is if the tax is levied no matter what you do, then it's much more like a tax than like a regulation in a sense. And that's what we're seeing. So Walmart, uh, beginning of April, already got a suit, wrongful death suit, someone who worked at Walmart and got COVID. Not sure if they got COVID at Walmart, but, but the suits has uh, been filed. Princess Cruise Lines, uh, which, which ran uh, various cruise ships that, that had outbreaks on them, has, has gotten uh, lawsuits uh, you've had class action lawsuits filed against against uh, nursing homes, against hospitals. Um, meat producer, Smithfield Foods has already gotten uh, litigation. And one of the things President Trump did with the Defense Production Act uh, invocation, uh, executive order on April 28th, was uh, to try to insulate some of these food manufacturers from the litigation, which otherwise would create intense incentives for them not to reopen, which could create, of course, Uh, food supply problems in the U.S. The last thing we want right now are food supply problems, which isn't to minimize the health issues for the workers there, but the notion that uh, we might have food shortages in the United States would be something obviously of vital national interest. But we've we've also seen a a panoply of lawsuits against uh, businesses that have shut down. Now, some of these may be sort of common sense contractual enforcements, you know gyms. You may have had a contract with a gym, and, and 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 the gyms closed down. You're not able to get your 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 usage of the gym that you paid for. Universities have been facing this, moving to online only. Uh, not just room and board, but, but but some people saying, well, you're not delivering the product you promised. And as we're seeing these all over the place. So you're sort of getting you're, you're sort of uh, damned if you do, damned if you won't, don't, in a sense, on these sorts of things. And then we're even seeing suits that are directly uh, at odds with with various health responses. So as I as I alluded to earlier, the FDA finally sort of cleared off some of the administrative regulatory burdens to getting alcohol based hand sanitizers out there. But we've already seen class action lawsuits uh, filed. Basically, quibbling. These are so-called consumer fraud lawsuits, which some states enable uh, without any showing of injury or damages. And they're saying, "Well, these things say they're 99.9 percent effective against germs. That's an untested claim. It's fraudulent. I mean, these are the sorts of things that could." Lead a producer if, if you're doing a generic product uh, and your target, you know, are you going to really want these huge lawsuits for hand sanitizers that don't make much money to begin with, or you're just going to pull them off the shelves? So these are they're quite a quite a, a problem uh, for the recovery. And I think what we need to really think about here is, you know, how can we, um, in a manner that's consistent with public health. Uh, and consistent with with, with individual safety, uh, prevent this sort of extra layer of of regulation through our liability system. When we have people that are hospitalized, and the hosp- and a large percentage of those hospitalizations are, are leading to death, then we want to take uh, you know we want to take more aggressive action. And the litigation threat here, in addition to the regulatory threat, is inhibiting that kind of action. So. There are all sorts of things we could do. We could create safe harbor programs. Uh, states could act, uh, individually as well. Most states have some sort of workers' compensation programs. The federal government may wish to get into those, ga- into that game as they've done with meatpacking industry if there's critical infrastructure. Uh, of national interest there. But a lot of these things could be done at the state level. But the federal government really needs to think about sort of the healthcare care system, uh, the food supply and distribution system, the financial system, uh, any of which might get rocked by litigation as the trial lawyers are really circling and, and very aggressively trying to block uh, both federal and state responses that, that uh, dry up potential uh, ways for them to make money. Uh, so, so we want to keep people safe the question is: Is is this liability system the best way to do it? Uh, and and are there better alternatives that could align businesses with safety? A safe harbor program could give businesses guidance on how to open, uh, and also give them some assurance that they're not going to get a, a crippling lawsuit on the back end.
0: Well, you'll be returning, um, Jim, to the themes uh, in a in a summer story for City Journal, so. Uh... Uh, it really couldn't be more important in the in the current crisis. Time for for one more uh, question. Uh, you you uh, have a book uh, coming out in the not too distant future that uh, explores some of these themes about administrative agencies, and uh, it it comes with the title uh, The Unelected. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and just give a preview, and we'll we'll for sure have you back on to talk about the book at greater length when it's out.
1: Absolutely, Brian, and it really intersects with these themes. You know, we've been talking about here today. Uh, it, it's it, the title is "The Unelected," the subtitle "How an Unaccountable Elite Is Governing America," uh, and it really is sort of an offshoot, a, a, a book-length development of themes that I developed uh, in City Journal uh, a couple years ago uh, in, in the summer edition um, and an article entitled the four horsemen of the regulatory state. And uh, really this is, this is uh, the, the sorts of things we're talking about today are, are what the book talks about. And so it talks about how the administrative law powers of the executive branch uh, crystallized here when what, with what we've seen from the food and drug administration and the centers for disease control uh, are delegated huge uh areas of responsibility. And basically the way this has been working uh, since the Great Depression is that Congress says, here, you fix it. Um, And the agencies then write all the rules and regulations that can get people into trouble and can govern our lives. And Congress never, it never goes back to Congress for approval or anything of the sort. So then you sort of have this, this follow on layer, not just administration, but enforcement, the prosecutorial power as well as the, well as the civil enforcement power, where, uh, without even going through the formal rulemaking process, which is the norm that we see here, you get rulemaking, uh, but you can at least challenge some of those regulations in court. Uh, instead you get these administrative guidances. You get the threat of prosecution leading to what are called deferred prosecution agreements where companies, instead of getting prosecuted by a company that could, a a, a big business getting uh, an indictment uh, could sink the business. Uh, A a business getting an indictment often would be declared ineligible for reimbursement through Medicare or lose various financial licenses that are essential to its business or be unable to contract with the government if it's a military contractor. So these businesses really uh, have to do what the executive branch Says, and these things are not reviewable by the courts. Then you sort of get these private level actors. This is the regulation through litigation, uh, where you get the private attorneys, uh, often state but also federal uh, laws being enforced. And nobody's voting on, on on these folks at all. Now, some some states may elect their judges, and the judges may have some power here. And some legislatures may be able to come in here and change the system some, although we've also seen cases where state Supreme Courts nullified legislative tort reform actions time and again uh, that prevented actual legislative change here. Uh, but this is this sort of extra level of regulation that, that is unique to the U.S., triple the cost of Europe. Uh, that we have to worry about. And then finally, you get these sort of actors who are, while they are elected, they're not elected by, in a national elective sense, state and local actors, who I call the new anti-federalists. And that's when you get mayors and local districts attorney and state attorneys general coming in there and uh, through either lawsuits or enforcement actions, dictating national policy. Attorneys general in the past, like Elliot Spitzer or Eric Schneiderman, uh, as state attorney general, nobody else in the country voted for those folks. So if they're able to actually change national commerce through their enforcement actions that are supposed to be at the local or the state level, uh, it creates uh, another layer of of what I call anti-federalism that means that, you know, one state can dictate to the other 49 uh, what, what, Things look like in that state. So these are the themes I want to talk about in my book. Uh, you know, it's easy to identify some of these problems. I go I go through a lot of the history, um, and you know, try to chart a course to, to to make this better. Although you know, it's it's a heavy lift because this thing's been going on for a long time and evolving over over the decades.
0: This is going to be a very very important book, Jim, and uh, um, we'll be sure to have you back on the podcast to discuss it. Do you do you have a, a release date for it? It's supposed to be available
1: on uh, September the 8th, so uh, early in the fall. If, if people are going back to school or, or however that's going to be happening, uh, pick up this book.
0: It's great. All right. Well, thanks very much, uh, Jim. Don't forget to check out uh, James Copeland's work for City Journal. You can find them on our, these pieces uh, that we've been talking about today on our website. We'll, we'll link to his author page in the description. He's on Twitter, at James R. Copeland, and that is, again, without an E. You can follow City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore M-I. And always, if you've enjoyed what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks again, Jim, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian.